Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. And now a moment for our sponsors. I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Aficionado Magazine. Every month, Acquisition Aficionado Magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Welcome to the How to Exit Podcast. Today, I'm here with Steve Conwell. He is with Final Ascent. They do mid-market M&A advisory services, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Thank you for being on the show today, Steve. Thanks, Ron. Looking forward to it. If you've seen the show, you know we always start off with the origin story. I kind of try to drop the joke, but it still pops up. I always like to say, hey, you were born, then you ended up on a show about mergers and acquisitions. Can you fill out the gap in between? Yeah. So how did you end up here, Guy? Yeah, it's a funny story. Um, so I kind of kind of going back to my audit days with Ernst & Young and going down that path, external audit, IT audit, and internal audit. I was always entrepreneurial. Um, so I built and sold a company with my wife. We had about 90 professionals and we did recruiting, IT risk consulting for the Fortune 2000. We picked up uh, seven of the top 10 professional service firms. So we sold it in 08. And so flash forward, I'm the fractional uh, interim CFO for a residential real estate firm. We built uh, 300 houses and uh, this exit planning person was a consultant. And I was looking at this going, this is interesting. And as I started to dive into it more, I realized when we sold our company in 08 and we thought we did great, we probably left easily like $3 million on the table and didn't know. We got purchased by a number nine firm, thought it was great. Uh, we got out at 08, but I mean, it was uh, a big eye opener for me. And as I started doing more research, I said, this is something that we want to do. So in 2017, we started Final Ascent through an exit strategy and advisory coaching to help businesses get ready for sale. And so we would refer them out to business brokers and M&A advisors. And we started looking at it and said, you know, at the end of the day, let's see if we can do this in-house. So I brought my friend uh, Jude David and I started visiting. He's an M&A corporate attorney, M&A advisor. He came on the bus. We brought Chase Kenner in as my other business partner and have been building it out ever since. So we do exit planning, succession, and M&A advisory for the lower middle market. That's but- awesome. We were talking beforehand, usually saying your kind of sweet zone is 10 million to like 100 million, right? So for our listeners, most of our listeners are your acquisition entrepreneurs and stuff. We would hope to buy a company, grow it, and need your help to finish the process off and sell it. Uh, you know, yeah. we're buying that. SBA alone qualified, maybe just a little bit, kind of okay. right at the borderline. I think probably our top buyers are buying things in the 8 to 10 million. I say that I know a few people that are bought in the 18 to $20 million valuation range. But yeah. it's very rare. They're usually doing, you know, companies doing high six figures to one to two million EBITDA. So and then yeah. the multiples of off of that, whatever that happens to be. So our listeners, what we're going to talk about today, I think, is what are you looking for? What do you how do you take them to exit? What's going on in that market space? Because most of our listeners, they want to sell. They want to reach out to you at the end of the process. And, OK, I built I bought this. I grew it. I built it. I've been into it for five or six years. Now it's time to sell it. I'm willing to you know, do a process for two or three years, five years, whatever it takes to sell it at its best. Where do we go? So let's start with kind of what's going on in the world today in your realm. So as far as the micro and macroeconomics of mergers and acquisitions of mid-market uh, businesses, what's kind of what's the space now at the end of 2023 and early 2024? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, obviously, we got past COVID. And so you had a lot of owners saying, look, let me kind of ride past it for another two or three years get my company moving again and building that enterprise value. You know, 2022 was a start of it, a great year. That first and second quarter, still heavy sell side, lots of deals being done. 2021 was gigantic, as you know, I think the biggest acquisition market in history. But what's happened is we've all seen the pain, right? So we've seen grocery bills going up, 
gas is expensive, inflation, the recession. And now you've got two wars being played out. Hopefully we'll see the Israel one tamped down soon. Um, but all those macroeconomic effects have started to change the deal market out there. And so you had banks when you had the ones, a couple of the banks that failed, people kind of get a little nervous about that, interest rates rising. And so the whole deal community had to sit back and say, how are we going to get these acquisitions over the finish line? How are we going to do it when in the past we were doing, you know, 75% debt, 25% of investment capital and funding, while the banks are saying, no, we got to get deposits in, we need to do a 50-50 type arrangement. And so all of these search funds, that would go find investment capital after the deal had been signed, can't get it over the finish line. At the 50-50% mark, where the only way the banks are going to get comfortable in their due diligence to actually let a deal happen, the multiples have to start to swing down a bit right. so that you can get the enterprise values into this range to see, yes, we can make it happen. So that's what's happening now. You know, Funded buyers, big strategics, private equity groups that have backing, I mean, they're still in the game. There's a lot of dry powder. I mean, tons of dollars on the sidelines that do need to find investment homes. But that's where we're sitting right now. In our experience, we evaluate the market a lot strategically. We're thinking Q1, um, latest by Q2, it'll start to move. Things will start to tamp down. We've got the December 12th, the Fed is going to be talking. We're all curious to see, are they going to raise rates? Are they going to keep it flat? And what are they going to do? But that's, that's kind of what we're seeing out in the marketplace right now. Um, I always say this, good companies in any market will sell. Yeah. And so when you're building a company, you want to very early in the process start to sell because you're going to transition at some point and at some stage. So start to do your research and understand like your podcast with all the guests that you have on what you need to do to build a valuable company that will attract multiple buyers so that you can get that lucrative exit. Awesome. So what do you think is going to happen next year? I'll give you kind of a, I think historically, if you look at election years, no administration likes to have a bad economy during election year because it hurts their chances of getting reelected. So they do a lot of things to artificially kind of in, fix the economy. Maybe it won't stick. I think the Biden administration is going to have to. He's got such a low approval rating. He's going to have to do something. But December is probably the last chance the Fed even has to raise the interest rate again because they're going to be got a lot of pushback from that point forward. It's going to be we're in once you're in 2024, we're in the election year. People are starting to make voting decisions early on. And I don't think I think it'd be a bad idea for the administration to do anything that doesn't boost the economy and yeah. in the perception of the consumer. So while they believe raising interest rates stifles, slows down inflation, the consumers don't care. <laughs> right. It hurt. Right. It hurt. It hurts. So I don't think I think December 12th might be. They may they may raise it one more time because I think it might be the last shot at doing it until after the, the election. So I think there's a sweet spot. What do you think? I mean, that that I think next year is not going to be a bad year because they're going to fight in tooth and nail the best they can to make the economy good, to make it look good, to make voters comfortable with the administration. And I think that's going to give people that are already in the cycle of thinking of selling an opportunity to Get it sold before we're back into a state of uncertainty, right? If the same administration stays in place, which I don't see how they can because the guy needs to retire. That said, the uncertainty after 2024 and when 2025 comes around, I think if you if you got a business you're thinking about selling, it should already be on the market. Um, what do you, what's your thought process on, on like selling something this coming year? Yeah, I mean, everybody's you know, waiting with bated breath on who the actual candidates are going to be. Um, we all believe we're agnostic on evaluating it because we want the best situation for our sellers. So at some stage, we believe, I mean, Biden, it's like we all get older. So at the end of the day, I think that there's going to be a replacement. We're already seeing that. Who's that going to be? Uh, yeah. We've got some names that are kind of thrown their hats in, but we'll see how that settles in. Once, once we know, then the market will do its thing. It will settle in and say, okay, now we understand which direction it's going to go. I don't think we're going to see too much craziness and any like tax changes or something that can affect the deal um, on long-term capital gains. That, that, that has been punted for the next administration. But I do believe that you're right. I think we're going to see some games being played on, hey, look how much better it is now. 
and it's going to be a war. I think it's going to be a war. From the deal perspective, I agree with you 100%. We, in our experience, what happens, business owners go take a couple of weeks off if they can. They see their families over Christmas, the different holidays, and they go, oh, my gosh, man, I've been slaving since COVID. I'm tired. My company is doing well. We've been growing. Our net profits are growing in the bottom line. Let's go to market. But as you as I know well, if you wait too long, because it's going to take eight to nine months to get a deal done, and you start right. pushing into the holiday season, it could punt into 2025, and you never know what's going to happen. The future, you can't predict. As much as you and I are putting our you know crazy hats on to say this is what we think is going to happen in 2024, China could invade Taiwan, yeah. and suddenly all bets are off at that point. Yeah, there's just so many things uncertain, and that's the economic st uh, status right now. It's uncertainty, and it's been that way for a couple yeah. of years. And I don't think that's going to change. Definitely not going to change in the current administration. And you know, it's yet to be seen who wins the election and how that changes. I really hope we get a whole new set. I I don't know when we're going to see stability like a, a like something that's like long and st stable again in the current state. So uh, if you're out there, and you own a business, and you're like, I'm just waiting until things settle down. I, you're, you might not retire for five or six years. You might want to take a look at what's going on right now and figure out how to ride the storm and deal with it. All right. Because uh, I don't think it's going to settle down for four or five years. And I'm just guessing here. I don't think the, the big thing we watch too is like the debt service and the federal debt. Mm -hmm. um, with the interest rates rising and you look at that, it's getting close to a trillion dollars just in interest every year. At some stage, it gets to where it's too big. And so I think the government's going to have to take a long, hard look at being fiscally responsible. Um, there's a lot of things in the budget that uh, actually aren't, because they're codified in law, that may cost eight, $900 billion a year that is never part of the budget. At some point, I say it this way, you can't run a lemonade stand this way and be 100% <laughs> upside down all the time. We're a massive cash machine. We have huge receipts that come in every year. So we're not bankrupt by any means at all. And we're the wealthiest country in the world. But at some point, you got to pay the piper. It's uh, like at the end of the day, we're all sitting back in our local communities, mm -hmm. building companies and growing them. You've got... Uh, families that you're supporting and employees and all that blood, sweat and tears. Yep. And it's like, just stay out of my way. Yeah. I want to be happy. Yeah. I want to be free. I want to sell it. And it's like my dad says, he goes with his financial manager that he works with. He's always have one question. I'll meet him like once a month. So what are you doing to protect my money from that federal government? Exactly. You know? it, it's just stay out of our way and, and let us do our thing. One of my good friends made a point uh, the other day. He says, anytime I have to worry as a business owner about what the federal government is doing and how they're managing things, they're not doing their job. I should yeah. be able to go up, at least in America, I should be able to go about my job on a day-to-day -day basis, build my company. Watch, you know, and, and yeah, I get taxed. I get this. There's usually ways I can learn and, and minimize some of that. He goes, but to really be concerned should not be something that I have to do. But we haven't been in that way in a while. There's been some concern for a while now. What do you think that the buyers are looking for right now? What are you seeing in the market as far as buyers? Um, I think they're, personally, I think they're being more cautious and are looking for things that are stable in any economy. I've seen that at our, the lower levels, passion industries, things that people send money, whether the economy is good or bad, pet service, veterinarian, you know, health and wellness, things like that. But what are you seeing as far as and that next level up in that mid-market, how has the buyer's behavior changed? You know, it's interesting when you look at the lending, because you always have a, typically a lending component, unless it's an all-cash offer. Right. Um, the banks are starting to go back to that traditional lending model. So we're not necessarily as comfortable lending on cash flow. We'd love to lend on assets, right? And so you have a lot of buyers, if they got a lot of recurring revenue, they don't have cash flow concerns. Obviously, in any market, those are businesses that are great. Mm -hmm. But they're looking and saying, okay, if for whatever reason, because something happens with the economy, something blows up, maybe the business has a downturn based on acquisition, can we get our money back? So what we've seen a lot in deal structures, and the buyers are getting more and more aware of this, is the banks are saying, instead of paying me back in five or six years, can we get paid back sooner? Can we look at excess cash flow and say we want 30% of that coming to us 
just to lower the risk of that debt being outstanding. I always say this, if you've got what I can, what I define as a great company, meaning that you've got financial statements that are accrual-based, you've got your processes documented, the owner has pushed down accountability and authority to his management team and to their employees so that he's got a CEO running the company, um, They've got a product that's unique in the marketplace, right? So they've got this defendable mode around their competition. They don't have huge customer concentration risk because buyers go, look, I don't want to buy the company. And that customer leaves and I'm the big bad gorilla having to go fire people. So what they're doing is they're spending more time on due diligence on, on the quantitative aspects, right? So they're going to look at the financials. They're going to dive into all the data on due diligence, but they're looking a lot at the qualitative aspects of what impacts value. And they're saying, could that go away? Is there going to be a problem? I think it's going to, I think it's going to tamp down. 2024, we'll see how it goes. I mean, I don't want to throw the crystal ball out there, but I think it will shift and start to shift to where more deals are going to get done. But them being cautious right now, absolutely they are. And I will say for folks like us that represent sellers, we're more cautious on making sure we don't have the, the wrong buyer. Can this buyer do the deal? Can they actually close? Yeah, yeah. Can you close? Show us you can close. Show us that you've got the funding. Show us that, you know, of the deals that you've done, can you do one for this size? Because nobody wants to spend that time, 30, 90, 120, 150 days going through this whole process for it to not pan out for sure. Yeah. I was talking to somebody who's raising money for a close right now. And he said, well, I'm $50,000 within. It's a small, small business, a couple million yeah. dollars. He goes, I'm, I'm really close. He's reaching out to me. He's like, I'm, I'm 50,000. I was like, no, you're not. You're 250,000. I said, why? And he said, because you've got to account for, like, you've got three of your main investors that are putting 200K in. If one of them leaves, so you need to, like, you have to have a backup because you're yeah. going to go to close. The way that those small deals are done on closing day, everybody wires their money to the, to the attorney. Yeah. One guy says, ah, something come up. I can't. You better have somebody else you can call. Like, have at least mm -hmm. one backup, like, especially when you're using only private lenders. If I was on your, you know, advisor stuff and somebody says, I, I think we raised the money. We're going to raise another 75000 Like, cool. What's the cap table look like? How many people are you talking to? Five. Okay. How certain you are that all five are coming to the table? Right. <laughs> right. Because I've seen so many deals. Like I've had people on the show where, man, we had one really good in the day of closing, 150 of my financing backed out. There's a part of me wants to say, you know, well, call me when it has that. I'm going to take a, twice the stake what he wanted. Like there's a way to take advantage of that, but then yeah. you, you didn't get to, it doesn't work because you didn't partake in a lot of the other stuff. Like you'd be on the fly to get something done in 24 hours or, or four or five hours when you didn't have all the due diligence. You don't know what they bring into the table as, as much as you think you might. Well, and the other thing too, is it's like, I always say, well, what's the company worth? What's what they signed the check for, right? Yeah. But at the end of the day, when you get that last two weeks and it's going back and forth, I mean, we don't say we have a deal done until that cash has showed up in the bank because, you know, buyers can get flaky at the last minute. Yep. And you know why? Because they can. Oh, yeah. We're done. We're out. We're going yeah. somewhere else. And, you know, I, life comes at you fast. Talk about like stress on a, on a business. So you have a CTO, 10% partner. You have a CEO, 10% partner. You have an investor and his son that own 80%. And in one year, not the CEO, but the other three people died. Massive stress on do you have a buy-sell agreement? Do you have key man insurance? You're going to have to pay the estate back for all three of them all at the same time. You were positioning your company to sell. Well, now, I mean, nobody's going to come in, right, until this thing stabilizes. And then God forbid, if the CEO has a divorce situation, something happens to him, economy goes crazy, which it has been. And suddenly, here's somebody who's depending on this business as his major asset to have a multi-generational wealth situation completely go away. And the company could sit to where it's not sellable anymore. So, yeah, all this stuff, this happens at any environment. But when people are nervous about making acquisitions, if they're not quite sure they can get them over the finish line, I always say they're looking for a no. How yeah. can I get to a no as fast as I can and politely walk away? They're trying to get to and evaluating that no situation on risk all the way through the deal cycle. For sure. And all the other parties are as well right now until things normalize, it gets stable and they're comfortable again. 
I think if it just, even with the high interest rates and other stuff going on in the world, if it, if nothing else happens and it stays that way for three to four months, people start to realize, okay, this is just the way it is. And things yeah. loosen up. People right. start, because people, venture capitalists, investors, private equity companies, family offices, they all need to make money. They all need to maintain wealth. They're, they might freeze up when there's a lot of fluctuations, but once they see that it's stable, even when it's different than it used to be, higher interest rates and everything else, they come up with a new game plan. Right mm-hmm. now, in the last six months, things are changing so fast that they might have pulled back and said, oh, it's hard to come up with a game plan when the and somebody keeps knocking over the whole chessboard every time I set up the pieces, right? <laughs> yeah. That said, all it takes for, for money to start moving again, and in and, and my experience in the real estate world and business world, is things to maybe not improve, but just stay freaking flat for a while so people can start re, you know, they can come up with a new strategy, right? They can come up with a, okay, this is the way it is. Here's a new game plan. Here's how we're going to, here's how we're going to address this. So that's what we really need on that side, I think. Plus a lot of people on these high interest rates, what they're not thinking about is, all right, well, I can get this deal through the cycle. Let's say I take 5% off on the ultimate sales price, but I get cash only. Well, you're sitting in a situation where you can get on a CD 5.3% interest or on some of these different tax-free alternatives at four and a half mm-hmm. and dump excess cash just sitting in there. Well, you couldn't do it before when you were at 0.2% interest. So there are like interesting strategies that can be put into play that we haven't seen in a long time um, for sellers. The other thing is that I always, I always like to say this, it's a simple statement, but buyers like to buy businesses that are thriving, not surviving. Right. You know, right, in yep. your world. And because why would they buy some company that's flat? I mean, some like to buy turnaround situations and go that way. But the majority of them, they've built companies. I don't want to go and do a startup, right? Exactly. That's the whole thing. I'm 51. I don't want to do I'm about to turn 52. I don't want to do that again. The reason I'm in this space is I want to get, show me something that's working really well. And I just, it's my job not to screw it up, not my job to build it. I want to, you know, that's, that's my going joke is like, I'm looking for something that's mine to screw up. As long as I don't mess it up, it's going to crank out cash. That's what I want. I'm not going to even assume that I can improve upon it. My rule says you don't touch anything for six to 10 months, 12 months after you get a hold of it, because it's working. Who am I to say that the guy that run it for 30 years didn't know? I know so much more than him. That's a bad decision. But um, so here, I'm trying to think of how to phrase this. I'm, gonna, I'm, not, I'm just not going to be nice. If you're out there thinking about selling your business and you're getting worn out, the best thing you could ever do, and I, and I just get so frustrated by this, is go ahead and get a different CEO that's fired up and it starts to grow again. If you're going to be the guy that's going to lay back until it sells and tell off, you're going to have a hard time selling this company. And I see so many small business owners doing this. Like they're ready to sell. You, you have this scenario. They come back from Christmas. They're either, when you come back from a holiday, you're either fired up to go at it again for another year. Or yep. a lot of people, they come back and go, I want to go spend time with my family. And they kind of kick their feet up a little bit and they're going to ride it to close. And that just damages so much because when I look at a company, you start looking at the the revenue starting to drop. You're thinking, okay, I, why do I want to, you know, a plane? I don't want to climb on the plane if it's already in a tailspin, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Well, and, and you look at it as the buyer's looking at like an iceberg. Mm-hmm. So you're presenting all this rosy stuff on due diligence. Look how yep. great we are. They're concerned about what they're not seeing. And if you going through this whole selling process and you're flat, your revenue goes flat, starts to dip, net profits start to dip, buyers start getting concerned. It's like, what, what am I not seeing? What am I missing? Yeah. Um, now, granted, the reality is they all know buying a company that it's hard, right? Yep. It's 24-7. You're trying to keep your company going, hit their goals and objectives while you're answering a gazillion questions on due diligence you thought you'd already answered, right? Mm-hmm. So they get that, but they try to use that as an excuse to say, we got to lower the price. We had a quality earnings report. We evaluated what you've done. Really, you're only worth this. We're going to have to drop it half a million dollars. The biggest key is when you're not thriving, but when you're thriving, when you're growing in you know, revenue 30% year over year, and you go through the sales process and you maintain that, you have ammunition to say, well, yeah, we can take that half million dollar haircut. But at the end of the day, we've grown consistently. Trailing 12 months is a million five over. So you can pass the net million dollars. You can have your half million and we'll take our million five and, and call it even. And usually the buyers are kind of, well, you called our bluff. Not right. Yeah. The way it is. But the only way you get to play that card is you're 
you're working, you're putting in the time, you're growing, right? Yeah. And, and then, you know, a lot of times they go back and see that and they'll buy it that. They'll either pay what they said before. Or a lot of times they'll pay a little bit over because now they see that you are on the right tra- trajectory, yeah. right? I just turned away from a company that they made so many changes. They decided they wanted to sell. But before they did, they changed everything about their company, how they manage people. Like they went from once management structure to like an EOS type of thing. And there were some discrepancies and they just changed so much. And then so their revenue went from two and a half million a year, a small company to about 800K over an 18 month period. And they're starting to climb a little bit back up. But now the other thing, that, which is OK, I might oversee that. Yeah. But they kept wanting to be evaluated at what they were at the top. Like, no, nah, that's not how this works. It's not off what you're works. doing. Yeah, it's not how yeah. it works. And the second thing is the market on them went from being kind of wide open for them to being highly competitive. There's no barrier to entry in their market space. So yeah. when they started the business, they were kind of the only people doing it. There's probably you'll start to get one or two competitor. Now they're popping up everywhere. So so now you've got a very competitive landscape and a declining business. And like, I was like, okay, I have to pass on this here. And I wrote him a big, long email. Like, this is how you fix it. You got to carve out a moat. You got to carve out something so unique in your space that you're known for it. So now you have a different differentiator. You have something that's unique about you and you got to get it way back up on the uptick. So when you know, like an environment like me or something goes, sees that your plan works, right? All these changes you make, you believe in them. I believe that you believe in them. But I, I don't believe anything I can't see and, and, and see the history of. So you got to show me where like six months, eight months of history of it actually working. That's what's so tough with sellers. You know, think, hey, I implemented this. Look at all this value I created. But have you operationalized it? Is there proof that it's actually going to work? The other thing, go back to what you said. So when a buyer asks a seller, hey, why are you selling the company? The last thing they want to hear is, I'm so sick of running my business. I'm sick of my employees. I just want to get out. They're like, well, if you hate your company, why am I going to buy it? You've got buyers got to feel like not only you energized and excited that entrepreneurial spirit that caused you to start the company, build the company, motivate all your employees. They need to feel that. And then they also need to feel options, right? Hey, you could roll over part of this with an earnout, and you're believing in it. We're growing, we're building. You can take you can take part in that or getting a second bite of the apple, selling, rolling over. of your equity. They bolt on 10 more companies to yours. It's a platform, sell it again. And now your 30 was worth more than the 70 you sold it for. Right. Right. So, I mean, all this stuff is important. And that's why we say, I hear this time and again, and you made this uh, comment when we first started talking, you want to work with strong advisors as early as possible for the tax minimization strategies, because I, I can't tell you how sad it is how many times we see millions of dollars left on, left on the table or evaporating yep. or a company, like you said, in your previous example, they were worth, let's say they were running at 25 million in revenue. They went down to 17 and they dropped down to 10 because of stuff that's happened and their net profits just dwindled accordingly. Mm-hmm. They think, well, we still have a $10 million company. The reality is buyers evaluate through history mm-hmm. and three year look backs and all that. And they'll go, Something's something's wrong. Something's much more wrong than we thought. If that was reversed, you would have buyers chopping at the bit to buy that company. I mean, the growth is meteoric and uh, you'd have a great situation. And I mean, it would sell for huge value. So it's weird. It's like um, in that scenario where it's growing that much, you get buyers going, oh, no, we're not going to sell, man. We're rocking. We're blowing up. Let's keep riding the train. And then it drops to zero at some stage on the other scenario 25 17 to 10 it's like when they should be rolling up their sleeves and turning this thing around we just need to sell we're tired of it it's not working we need to go ahead and get out and if they just had somebody that could talk to them and help them look this is not as dire as you think and we've got two more years we can get this moving in the right direction, but they leave just an inordinate amount of value on the table and it's it's sad. And you have to turn them away. It's like, I'd love to help right now, but you have to sell because your parents just got sick. Life comes at you fast, right? Right. Issue with your kids and you have to sell now. I mean, we might be able to get X on it, but the way the market is, it may be very tough in that scenario. You never want to be selling on the premise that you can fix something I can't. Because as a buyer myself, I look at it and go, 
why in the hell do you believe that I can fix something that you've been running this thing for the last 12 years can't fix? Right. I'm new. I'm a, I don't care if what it is. I don't care if I've done it a, a bunch of different times. I haven't done it in your business with your employees, with your customers. So yeah. that's a new environment to think I can fix something. You know, I, I love the, the seller's positive. Hey, if you do X, Y, and Z, it'll ha- this will happen. It's like, cool. Why didn't you do it? I love that seller's encouragement and belief in the buyer, but it's never true. Sometimes our ego says we can, but we won't buy off that premise. Like the, the, like the case I was telling you with them, it's like, I can't promise myself and my investors, if I show them, if I take this to my investors, I can't say with certainty that I'm going to turn this around in the, you know, in the three years. I usually make sure the, the way our structure is they get their money back pretty quick. So, and then they get to keep a little bit of, so it's kind of like a loan with equity. Yep. So, so I structure it to where they get their, their their capital they put in back pretty quickly and they end up with a smaller piece of equity than they would if it was just the investment into it. So that said, like to look at the, you know, to look at my investors in the eye and go, yeah, I promise you, I'm positive I can get the money back to you in three to five years. Like, it's on the decline. How am I going to promise that? And all these, all the buyers have a story they have to tell somebody, unless it's a corporate buyer like Microsoft or something like that. It's a strategic purchase. Yep. Yep. And I think a lot of times sellers, what they forget, almost in almost all cases, the buyers are more sophisticated. They've been there and done that. And yep. so the reason why I said back uh, a while back about having accrual based financials is because that's the language of business. Right? Yep. It's the way that you evaluate your company and compare it to others in your industry, right? So industry benchmarking, Mm -hmm. but you may not realize they're looking at 200 other companies. So we're going to compare you to companies that are like you, but in different industries, right? Same size, maybe same demographics, et cetera. And you want to present yourself in the best light possible so that they go, yep, I want to pick you. The other tough thing throughout this whole process is that I can't tell you how many times, bigger companies, you have a $55 million company, you think everything is great and you start to evaluate getting prepped to go live um, and go to market. Accounting is still a mess. You know, eight months later, it's been completely cleaned up and now we can go to market, but life can come at you fast. So it doesn't matter. You don't need to be, I've got a BSMS in accounting. You don't need to be the expert in it. But what you do need to understand is how do I evaluate my profit and loss statement? You need to understand your balance sheet. You need to understand cash flow. Even if you've got advisors who are explaining it to you or your CPA explains it to you consistently so you can make effective business decisions, oftentimes they're making decisions more on a gut feel versus evaluating. Because typically like what's happened in the past is a good predictor of the future. And if you've got a runway on projections and all that, you can say, here's how we're driving the ship. Here's our past performance. And we're confident this is how we're going to get there. And then you just get used to doing it because you go through due diligence and you're selling your company and you get a gazillion questions on the finances, right? I mean, you know the drill, but all this detail and you don't, you're not comfortable with your numbers and what's happening. Buyers are talking to you. You may have your advisor with you trying to ride herd, but you end up saying the wrong things because you don't understand it well enough. It's not because you're not an expert. It's because you haven't structured your business in a way for success. We see that all the time. We were talking about, you said, I'm going to accrual accounting basis. I know right now of a tech company who they were in the middle of selling to one of their kind of competitors. It was a strategic purchase, I guess you would say. A company that does something similar, wanted to add them as a product line. And it wasn't a small, it wasn't a small acquisition. It was above $25 million valuation. And they get down to within months of being, like they already told a lot of their key employees that they were being sold. And the buyer had to back out because they figured out the accounting was not accrual and not matching up. And the buyer was going public within a certain period of time. And that would mess up their IPO. The IPO attorneys and accounting accounting departments were saying like, don't acquire that thing. We don't have time to clean that up before your IPO day. So it really can mess you up. Like the the one thing that anybody can get right, if you think you're going to sell in, I'd say in the next five years, do a quality zone. If you're a company, especially if you're doing 10 million and above and you fit that mid-market thing, Bring in accountants, bring in outside people that are familiar with mergers and acquisitions that know what a deal room looks like, knows what buyers are looking for. Accountants and, and team and advisors that can look at it and go, we need to do X, Y, and Z to make this look right. I just learned recently about this whole QSBS thing. I promise you, I buy the, the next thing I buy is going to be bought totally different because I want to qualify for that. And if I want to sell it oh to gosh, you, know, if, I, I, if I buy something and want to take it to a guy like you and sell it, 
having the first $10 million be tax-free is pretty uh, impressive incentive, but it has to be done a very specific way. Section 1202, yeah, the qualified yep. small business stock. Yeah. My, my partner, Jude David, he always says this. He goes, doing exit planning in succession and all the tax strategy for selling your company because it's like your will. Yep. You need to do it, but you keep punting it down the road, right? Yep. And yep. that it's a five-year, you have to be, change your company's structure to a C-Corp mm. and then hold the stock for five years or more. Yep. And if or you more. do that, you qualify for the $10 million exemption. So it's tax-free. Unbelievable, yeah. right? 10 million or 10X your basis. So say you can prove yeah. you put in 2 million or $5 million to, to build it. If you can prove that's what the, the insertion was, then you can go 10X that as tax-free. That's incredible. Unbelievable, man. Yeah. I mean, if you just think about the tax savings alone, yeah. dropped it into an S&P 500 index for the next 30 years, that alone is multi-generational wealth. Just on the it same. is. Yeah. And, and like, I just it kind of, I'm sure it came up. I brought a tax advisor on a long time ago, but by the time I was in the middle of the show with him, my head was spinning, right? He was in there. <laughs> I'm sure he spit out the acronym QSBS a few times and it just went over my head. But I just, I heard about it again recently. I just wrote an article about it, did the research and wrote a small article about it so that other people in this space could be aware of it. What caught my attention is I caught an article where somebody messed it up. They bought a company as a stock purchase instead of an asset purchase. Yeah. And they tried to do QSBS and they ended up getting popped because that, that doesn't qualify. You have to be an asset purchase. There's a bunch of little things that happen. So if you're an LLC and you're trying to switch over to a C-Corp, it has to be done very specifically a certain way. You got to set up, I mean, because it's not just a share swap or something like that you got it's got to be done by advisors that know how to set it up so that you can qualify on the other end the cool thing other than that is it's 10 million dollars per tax return so if you think yeah. about that yeah. i have a wife and two kids right so think about it you could set up a c-corp and i've verified this and proved that it works i could set up a c-corp where if i knew i wasn't going to sell my son's 13 so if i knew if i wasn't sell for eight to ten years or even I don't know if it matters if he's a minor when I sell or not, but you could give them a minority stake, get a little piece there, a little. I don't know if I'd give them a full ten million dollars worth, but you could take the shares and spread among your family and each tax return that you have to file, and to, including qualified trust. What you'd have to do. So we would talk about our business owners this way. So yeah. you have like a, say, a dad owns the company, hundred percent. Mm -hmm. He's got two kids. Maybe they're working in the business. Maybe they're not. But he's mm -hmm. like, hey, I'm going to transfer some ownership to them, mm -hmm. get them involved in the company. Well, the thing is, is that those kids make nothing, right? Or even if they're working in the business with a 100K base or something to that effect, you got to pay taxes off that when you're transitioning it. So you have to build this approach to do this over time. And time, mm -hmm. is, time is your friend. Time kills deals. Time kills tax advantage. Time kills enterprise value. And so the earlier you can talk and start thinking about this. And most people go, I'm never going to sell my company. At some point you get a call, which is also a tough, you know, another conversation of getting that call out of the blue and somebody decides they want to buy you. If you're really thinking about selling, go through the process, get multiple buyers to the table. And that person is going to give you their best offer. They weren't when they just called you by themselves. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> but they were going through the deal. But yeah, it, it's just important. It doesn't mean you got to go hire all these advisors, right? but get yourself educated. It's like this. You put your entrepreneurial hats on. Like you said, more about your company and your pinky than I do, even if I got expertise in your industry. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. You wear all these hats, you're an entrepreneur. You need to put a seller hat on and look at your company through the buyer's lens. How do they look at my company? Because then you can take the emotion out of it. Now I can be objective. Mm -hmm. And as much as me, like you said this, well, my company's really worth this, right? Two years ago, it was X or we're growing like this. So you should pay me all this premium. When you evaluate it from the buyer's lens, you can say, okay, now I understand. Like that commoditized industry where they were the new entrant in the market. And now it's suddenly an army of competition. All right. Well, if you looked at your business when you first started it the way buyers do, and you start the entrance in the market, you would have known, I need to find something that's like a blue ocean that makes me unique. Mm -hmm. So I can maintain my, not competitive edge, my valuation edge to my competition. All of that price. stuff matters, regardless of industry, all of it matters. For sure. I love that. That's the first time I've ever heard anybody call it a valuation. Uh, what did you say? Valuation, uh, valuation edge. edge. 
Yeah. So instead of competitive edge, what's my valuation edge? What what makes me unique in the environment of selling it? And a lot of companies are missing that. You know, that's one of the things I look for when I'm looking at something is what's unique about this that will that makes them stand out, that'll keep, you know. Yeah. As these business owners get into this space and they're and they're looking to sell, I love that. What is my valuation? advantage? What is my competitive advantage? What is my valuation advantage? It's a good story to tell a buyer. Like, you know, my competitive advantage is this is what makes, and I ask every seller I've ever talked to, I say, what makes you unique in the market space? And a lot of times they don't have a good answer. I'd say majority of time, probably 80% of them don't have a solid, like if you talk to a marketing firm, they'll have the answer because they formulate that for other people. But as far as acting, your normal business owner has been around running his company for 30 years. What makes you unique in the market space? Now, yeah. I would say that the reason for that oftentimes, it's so simple, but it's not, is when's the last time, I always ask them this question, when's the last time you've evaluated your competition and what they are doing? Because sometimes it's their website articulating something better than you, right? Marketing things that you see. Maybe they're hiring people differently. Go on LinkedIn, see their employees and go, wait a minute, what's this title? What's this? What's this? They don't know. The other thing is a commoditized situation. I I like to say, have you saturation proofed your business? Because you may decide it's this time that I want to go to market at the exact same time that your industry is all wanting to sell. And so now it's supply and demand and just the economics of it. So have you created a valuation edge against your competition and have you saturation proofed your business? Because even if you're a shining star, the multiple will go down if the market is saturated because I can go buy this other company that's just like you for the most part for less. So both of those things, I think, are, are really important when you put it that way. And as long as you get that education to understand this is how buyers look at my company, And I want them to, I want to structure my business and my competitive advantage in a way that makes me a shining star. doesn't matter what the market's going to do. You'll be able to sell for maximum value for sure. It's funny as you, I always like to share aha moments. And I just had one when you were talking there. So I manage my business off of four questions. Three I ask during every meeting. And then once one of the fourth question I ask probably once every four or five meetings or once a quarter at least. And I've never thought about having those things like, pick my top five competitors and sign somebody in my team to ask those same questions about those people. And the questions are very simple. What are we doing really well? So we start every meeting off with a pat on our back. What are we doing really well? Right? So I want to know what's working. So what's working? What's do, what are we doing really well? What can we improve upon? Right? What, yep. what, what could we do better? What are we totally missing? That's the third question. Those get asked in every single, whether it's a, we're looking at a product or solving a problem. And then once a quarter I go, what are we doing that we should probably stop? All right. There's something out there. We're spending time and energy on something. We should probably just cut the thing. And I do that when I evaluate businesses, when I'm looking at business, what are they doing really well? How, where can they improve upon? Right. What are they totally missing in the market or whatever? And then is what are they doing that I think that should just, they probably just freaking should stop doing what's all together. It's just wasted their time, energy, and money. And not that I would make those changes right away. It's just something to have in the back of your mind and know so that you can make the changes when time appropriate. But I never thought about assigning somebody on the team and go, here's our top five com- uh, competitors. Once a quarter, I want this evaluation done on them. What are they doing really well? What could they yep. approve upon? What are they missing? And then translate that into you, because if they're missing something and you add it to your product, you've got a comp- competitive advantage. Yeah. Right? And then I, w- I would argue probably like once a year, mm-hmm. say uh, you can run a search top 25 mm-hmm companies in X industry, your industry, right? And then see, okay, these are the top five you wanted to do. Well, wow, here's these two new entrants. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen before. And holy cow, man, they're doing something completely different I haven't thought of. So as much as you're doing that due diligence that way, also got to kind of broaden the horizons. Now here's my new five. Yeah. That's a you good know, no, that's a good thing is that the five never the, the five is dynamic like this quarter who's the top who are the top five this quarter right or this, this yeah. once a year at least I, I like that so I'll put that in the show note in my show notes like I keep there's things, lessons I learn from everything so apply that to the competitive because that's how you get better yeah the second way you get better is and we're about to do this for the show and for all my newsletters is we're gonna, we didn't do it this year but yeah. uh, next year once a quarter I'm gonna bring in a pool of my listeners and readers. And we're just, we're going to have that meeting. What are we doing really well? What could we do better? What are we totally missing? What do you need that we're not delivering? Right. Yeah. And we take notes on that and where there's consensus amongst, you know, bring in 10, 20, 30 people uh, on a Zoom call. 
and get those questions answered and document it, you can build something that like the, the market needs and wants. And that's where a lot of, I think a lot of companies miss that. And that's the, I think as you're selling, as you're as an advisor and these people are selling it, you have the unique advantage of bringing to the table to these sellers to say, here's what all the buyers want. Here's what you're doing well in their, in their view. Here's what you're doing well. This is what they, they want this. Here's what you kind of missing there. You're going to want to look for this and I don't see it. Where is it? And yeah. oh, by the way, <laughs> you should be really doing this and you're not doing it at all. And they're, they're going to look, for, you know, your business is cyclical. They're going to figure that out in due diligence. You need to do a cash flow, a tw- trolling 12 months or the last three years of cash flow statements. Be expecting them to want to see the cycle of your business. Yeah, but, it's, it's, it's so interesting. It's like, um, like trailing 12 analysis. A mm-hmm. lot of people will look at, I'm going to look at my sales this month compared mm-hmm. to last year, same month. Mm-hmm. I'm going to look at sales this month compared to last month. I'm going to do year-to-date sales compared to budgeted year-to-date sales. But what they don't do is evaluate their business trailing 12 months of sales. So if I'm looking at January, or like right now is uh, is the last day of November. So November, I say I'm going to take my revenue from December 1st of last year to November 30th of this year, all 12 months of it. Then the next month, I'm going to look at my revenue for 12 months, next for 12 months, the beauty of this little simple chart yep. is that if that number is bigger than last month's, you're happy. As soon as it goes flat, you're not growing and we need to go and solve the problem. And you can do this for like cost of goods sold, yep. operating expenses. You can do this based on percentages, trailing yep. 12 months, gross margin percentage and compare it month over month. So I like doing that. I'll look at the, we always ask for the three years financials. If I get all three years of financials, I'll actually plot them on a, a single chart. And yep. I, I look at uh, revenue and net profits. One of the two I'll look at and I'll make them like for each year. So I'll do the last three years. I'll make them like light red, dark red. So that's that year. So I can tell that that dark red is is a revenue, light red is a net profit for that year. And then yeah. on the same chart, on the same like a 12 span chart, I'll do the pre the next year and I'll say light blue, dark blue. And all what I'm looking for is I can if I see on a month to month basis charted over 12 months and three years stack, I can see a pattern. And then I can see it's not fully like a cash flow analysis, but I can pretty much see are there cycles in the business? Are you trending upwards? Are you better than last year? It gets a little confusing, but I, I like, I don't know if anybody else does it that way, but I like to be able to, and I, I don't even ask them to do it for me. As long as they give me three years financials, I'll, I have one of my guys put in a spreadsheet a certain way and it pops out a chart for me. And it's just something I glance, at a glance, I can look at it and go, you know, there's a cycle here. They are growing over time. And, uh, I can see that, but I'm not really good at accounting still. Like, even though I had to have it in my undergrad and in my MBA, I still defer that to somebody else. So I have somebody do all that and give me a cash flow analysis. And the first thing I look at it, but a lot of times I don't even know what I'm seeing. I just look at it well enough to go, okay, tell me what I should be seeing here. And I, I have a few CPA level people that I can reach out to and they can show me and go, Hey, this is, the, you know, I think it looks good. And they go, yeah, yeah, this is great. Here's why it's good. Here's why it's bad. We all look at that. A lot of the buyers look at that. And even the small deals all the way up to big deals. And if you as a seller don't take a look at what they're going to look at, looking through their, like you said earlier, looking through the lens of the buyer, you don't know what story you're telling, right? Yeah, the other, the other concept, it's easier to implement the right things when you're smaller than to try to implement them when you're much bigger. Because I always say this, people hate change. Like even good change is mm-hmm. a beat, right? Yeah. And so if you're had your business for 15 years, 20 years, et cetera. And suddenly you're having to go implement all of this now. Mm-hmm. You'd rather take a little bit of a discount, let the next buyers do it. Cause your employees are going to be anxious, nervous, yep. they're going to hate it. And you're going to have all this churn going through a deal process. And there's nothing fun about that. Right. Yep. Somebody said, Hey, we're closing on this $5 million business or $10 million business, whatever the number is. Yep. Here's what I'm going to change in the first 60 days. And I like, I stop them before they ever say a word, like stop. Yeah. You don't change anything for the first 68 days. And he says, why? I said, because you're going to lose the business. I've interviewed 190 people and every failure I've heard from was, I would say 80% of the people that failed after they acquired something was because they jumped in and started making changes. I said, for the first six months, 12 months, even 18 months, don't change anything, but keep that list of things you want to change. And I said, no, well, how do, I've got to change things. How do I do it? I said, interview every single person at the company and ask them what they would change if they could. And yep. then compare that to finding consistency. And when you get consistency of things they would change that match your list, start with those items because now you're building, you're building, you're changing things they want to change anyway. 
and you're building rapport with them because it looks like you're listening, you are listening, but you know, you start with those things, even if they're the lower level things. I'd like to say this, this might be interesting. So when a buyer's buying a company, one A is the company and one and what you do. One mm-hmm. B is the employees. Mm-hmm. And the last thing the employees want to do, because the assumption on that scenario where the guy wanted to go make all these changes, what if they've already done a lot of that stuff? So you're going to come in, you're the big buyer. I'm the big new owner now. I'm going to make all these changes to the business. And behind the scenes, that grapevine starts squawking. Yep. The person doesn't have a clue. Why did this owner sell the company? This is awful now. Mm-hmm. And that is so hard to change and get back on track. Yeah. You're better to do exactly what you said. I love what you said. Mm-hmm. And then you look like you're wise. Mm-hmm. You're listening. The other thing is that that concept of the good scenario we just talked about is just be the last to speak. Ask them. Listen. Yeah. Don't have judgment. And yeah. then slowly make the changes and you'll build a much more valuable businesses than you purchased. A lot of people don't get that. You had to build a rapport with that seller in order to buy your company, yep. maybe a little less in your market. Cause there's a lot of strategic and, and capital behind it, but yep. in this smaller market in that $10 million and below you'll lose that. You may not win a deal off rapport alone, but you'll hundred percent lose a deal off rapport. If some, if the business owner doesn't like you, he's not selling to you. That said, sometimes that doesn't happen when the cap table is bigger and you have multiple investors and you can kind of get over roads. You'll sell, you'll, you'll the, the business might sell to the asshole, but excuse my language, but not for, yeah. in the lower market. It doesn't happen. And we sell five to $10 million companies too. Yeah. I mean, we, we evaluate them. Yeah. So we're acting like the buyer when we're looking yeah. at them. The owner may not know that, but we're just going, could we get this over the finish line? Um, and it's the same thing. We, yeah. we put the buyer's lens at lens yeah. on because we know we're going through that cycle for sure. Yeah. So man, I appreciate having you here today. Tell us uh, what we can do for you. Tell you, tell us what the, um, what's your ideal client and then how do people reach out to you and get a hold of you? Yeah. I mean, our ideal clients, I mean, if you look at industries, we're fairly industry agnostic, but we're evaluating companies based on the criteria that we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd like to visit with companies three to five years early if we can, and then help them maximize that value. What happens a lot is they go, oh my gosh, we're running the company. Like, this is great. And suddenly you may realize I want to hire the CEO and go down the next path for sure. But we can visit with them early. If they want to sell now, we'd want to sit down and visit so we can help guide them Mm -hmm. because maybe that's not the best decision, right? Right. And we're going to help them. Man, I'll tell you, honesty, integrity, and character matter. I can't tell you how important that is to us. So we will tell you this is your range that you're going to sell for. This is what we're seeing in the marketplace. And we're really going to help you make that decision for sure. As far as getting in touch with me, Steve Conwell, C-O-N is in Nancy, as you can see here. Conwell on LinkedIn, you'll find me under Final Ascent. It'd be a great way to connect. My email address is sconwell at finalascent.com. My direct dial is 214-253-8422. If you just want to reach out and visit, love to talk to you. And I'll put his contact information in the show notes. I, I thank you, Steve, for being here today. And we'll call that oh, a show. You're welcome. We'll yeah, call that fantastic. Show. Thanks to Todd. Awesome. Hold on for just a second. I don't want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created $5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between $5 million and $30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A decision makers who are ready to buy. For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace, we have partnered with, has a proprietary database of 50,000-plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, Microsoft service providers, software-as-a-service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft, Oracle, ServiceNow, and and, and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business, you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the IT exchangenet.com slash marketplace how to exit that link will be in the show notes visit them now